Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. It's amazing from each of the tribes of Israel. And of course, this was a pseudomograph. Uh, he didn't write it. There's the incarnation of God. Right? Why in this specific, just amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. The Bible, 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 the Robert and Price Bible Geek with you again today to try your patience and uh, uh, send you into paroxysms of confusion. After all, uh, just doing my job. So let's uh, remind everyone to. Um, Snap up a copy of Holy Fable, Volume 2, The Gospels and Acts, Undistorted by Faith. Of course, it might be distorted by my insane uh, views of the Bible, but what the heck, you're used to that by now. So, I uh, also like to uh, sh- shamelessly remind you of uh, the unending benefits and delights and ecstasies uh, accruing to becoming a Patreon supporter of uh, little old me. Uh, I can use the money, you can use the human Bible and various posts by me. Thanks a bunch. But uh, with that, let's get right into the uh, the exciting questions from the exciting listeners. This from Derek Krupka. It says, last night I talked to a co-worker about that utterly horrific church shooting. I guess there's more than one, I forget which. Uh, He actually told me he'd bring his gun from now on to church, to which I actually agree, but anyway, I went on to explain my own thoughts and, quote, beliefs, unquote, which which at best I would classify as a non-practicing Jew. During our conversation, I brought up the Gospels a lot. He couldn't see that the voice from heaven speaks to both Jesus and the crowd in the different versions. You know, just to Jesus in Mark and Luke, uh, but to the crowd in Matthew. Uh, saying this is saying, this is my son, uh, uh, is speaking to Jesus as well as thou art my son. I guess that's what your friend thought. This isn't the part of my question, just a tangent uh, that gets my brain a-working. Anyway, I started to read Works of the Church Fathers, edited by Philip Schaff, and was reading the intro to Barnabas, the son of exhortation, as it states. But reading along the intro, I had to Google to find out if what I was reading was from Philip Schaff, the editor of this book, or 
really the church fathers, and it appears to be the latter. So, uh, though I just started reading, how sure can we be of any of these so-called uh, biographies? Um, well, uh, this sounds like an explanatory note uh, identifying the ostensible author of the Epistle of Barnabas, usually grouped with the so-called apostolic fathers, uh, along with uh, the Epistle to Diognetus and First uh, and Second Clement, uh, the Ignatian Epistles, uh, the Didache, and uh, Martyrdom of Polycarp, uh, the Epistle of Polycarp. Uh, well, and uh, it it doesn't uh, identify in the text the author with the character from the Book of Acts, uh, son of encouragement, which I think is a later rationalization of the name. I think it means son of Nebo or Nabu, uh, a theophoric name. Nebo or Nabu was the god of uh, fate. And um, if any comic book fans are out there, I suspect there are. Uh, yes, indeed, this is the patron deity of uh, Kent Nelson, Dr. Fate. He wears the helmet and amulet of Naboo. Uh, Moses knew about him because he was on the uh, mount, he was on the top of Mount Nebo, same thing, right? Anyway, uh, so if it tells you that Barnabas means the son of exhortation, that's the editor explaining Um there's no self-reference uh, of that kind in the, the letter, though the name on the letter is Barnabas, and it most likely is supposed to be that character. Okay, um, and uh, however, th that a claim like that really doesn't prove anything. I include uh, Barnabas in uh, my pre-Nicene New Testament, and I grant that it could possibly be from the character Barnabas. Uh, and, um, I mean, there's no reason to rule him out as a historical character. And uh, it, it's, it's conceivable. I mean, usually people say, well, this is out of the question. Uh, Barnabas, as we know from the Bible, can't have held to this kind of weird exegesis of Scripture. I, I'm not too sure of that. I wouldn't be too quick to say that. I think it's a toss-up. We don't really know who it was, and it very likely is pseudepigraphical. And in fact, uh, pseudepigraphy is so common in early Christian writings, even in the New Testament, that uh, I think it's not particularly likely that this would be an exception. And uh, so the mere claim of any name is not decisive. Uh, it's uh, people wrote these things under uh, the names of major characters to get a hearing for what they had to say. They knew that if uh, if they circulated as the epistle of Stan or something, it's not going to get any uh, real uh, traction. Um, so, and there are loads, like the Gospel of Thomas was really written by Judas Thomas, and I doubt it, and so on down the line. Okay, um, continuing with Derek, when St. Ambrose has no spotlight on the Bible but wards off those evil Arians, uh, A-R-I-A-N-S, not A-R-Y-A-N-S, right? The theological group, not the ethnic group. Uh, but wards off those evil Arians, dispersing lies, as it says about the saint in his intro, uh, when, it all, when all it has to say about Barnabas is that... Uh, 
is what is in the epistles. I understand we come off as bigots for letting the fundamentalist down nine-tenths nine out of ten times, especially with regards to the New Testament. But they're on a whole new field with a different game going on. They accept many times uh, as as right, while we have to juggle all that encompasses these characters. What do I, do we honestly know about any of the disciples? My friend said we do know things about them and that it's okay if the list changes from gospel to gospel because it's like your mom calling you by your middle name when you're in trouble. Uh, I just don't see my friend's logic in that, but he probably doesn't see a problem with the list changing. To finish off, how do we verify any of these early church claims since the gospel, uh, gospels and epistles, along with church history, all point to being propagandized? Uh, you can't really. The most you can do is to say, well, uh, there's no proof that this wasn't by Paul or wasn't by John or wasn't by Barnabas. And that's it. I mean, it, nobody has yet seen the problem, uh, and they may yet, uh, like the Josephus uh, on that passage, the Testimonium Flavianum, uh, where he says, about this time there was a man called Jesus, if uh, it's enough to call him a man, etc., etc., a lot of people have suspected this isn't really by Josephus, but in recent years, new approaches to the study of this little paragraph have really made it clear that there's no way Josephus wrote it. So it may become clearer and clearer, and with uh, F.C. Bauer and Schleiermacher also, it became, in the 19th century, um, it became clear that uh, various of the Pauline epistles really were highly doubtfully written by Paul. And I think soon after with von Manen and Bruno Bauer and others, it became highly doubtful that any of the Pauline epistles were actually by Paul. But that's, uh, that's a, you know, a huge matter of debate. I'm about to start on the section of Bart Ehrman's fascinating book, um, the triumph of Christianity, where he's dealing with Paul and what we can know from the supposedly authentic epistles. Well, you know, I have trouble with that because I don't think there are any. Uh, it, it's a big mess. But uh, to go back uh, to what I, my train of thought, the most you could show is that, well, the authenticity has not been disproven. And as long as there's any chance that Paul or whoever wrote it, then we're entitled to go on believing it. It's funny how often what should be agnosticism turns magically into fideism. That is, you find that, um, well, we don't really know, we can't prove it either way, and so what should be the uh, the inference from that? Uh, well, we got to remain agnostic on the question. We just don't know. But instead, people say, well, in that case, I can just believe what I want to about it. What the church has always told me, what are you? 
It's just the will to believe that distorts conservative scholarship, and this would be a case of but your friend is basically uh, saying, like with regard to the lists of apostolic names, that, well, it's possible that they're all consistent if uh, you posit that what at first look like different people's names are really just different names for the same individuals. Well, that's possible, but uh, uh, you can't just assume that. I mean, it, it is about, F.C. Bauer said, the historian asks not what is possible, but what is probable. Uh, and if you take this, uh, well, let's just give it the benefit of the doubt, Almost always in uh, New Testament discussion, biblical discussion, that means let's uh, give it the benefit of faith. Uh, let's just believe it's what we heard in Sunday school. Uh, no thanks. So these things are very difficult. And so many of them are, I think, demonstrably pseudepigraphical that it really takes a pretty strong case to show that one is not. Okay, the Pope asks, uh, why didn't Jesus, oh, why did the, the Jesus stone Mary Magdalene? I know Jesus calls out the stone throwers, John 8, 7, but wouldn't the Jesus be without sin and therefore be able to throw the first stone? Would it be a sin in his father's eyes not to follow the laws of the Old Testament? I know it's a more a morale tale, but I was wondering if you can answer, if you can add anything to this. Was Jesus technically wrong? Uh, I I don't think so. But one thing you got to keep in mind is that. This passage is not originally part of the Gospel of John. It appears in different places in John and different manuscripts. And in a couple of manuscripts, it's at a couple of different places in Luke. Uh, and it's obvious this was well known and uh, people decided, well, we don't want to lose this this little anecdote, let's anchor it in uh, this or that manuscript, which, um, you know, of course, I'm glad they did. I'm fascinated with any Jesus material, you know, whether it's authentic or not to me, that's now beside the point. Well, but, but the thing is, John's gospel is the only one in which Jesus says anything like a claim for sinlessness, where he says, which of you can convict me of sin? Uh, you, go ahead. Uh, the uh, you know what? I'm open to hear it. Do, do, you, do any of you know of anything? Well, of course, from the other gospels, we know that that there would have been hecklers that say, "Oh yeah, I know. Uh, you're a uh, glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." So you know this doesn't quite work. But at least Jesus is depicted as being pretty confident. Nobody has any dirty laundry on him, right? Even that is not a, a statement about absolute sinlessness, which you do find in the epistle to the Hebrews, right? But uh, I, I don't think that's – the question is, is Jesus a sinner like, you know, elsewhere in John? Uh, I, uh, this man may be a sinner, as you Pharisees say, but since when is a sinner uh, open the eyes of the blind? Um, so does it mean he's absolutely perfect uh, that, uh, or that he's just not a, a an evil uh, sorcerer and false prophet, or does it simply mean he was innocent of what he was charged with, uh, king of the Jews, insurrectionist and all that? That's, that's difficult to say, but 
even if John does mean the stronger claim that they never sinned, as in the Epistle of the Hebrews, that's John's gospel. That's not the the uh, adultery adulterous passage, as it's called, uh, the, or the pericope adult. I uh, forget the Latin suffix for this. Anyhow. Um, and so we don't know what sort of Christology whoever told this tale had in mind. Uh, so he may have well have thought Jesus uh, pictured himself as every man. But on the other hand, you could just say it's like that thing in Luke where somebody in the crowd says, hey, my, my brother refuses to divide the inheritance with me. Can you tell him to do it? You're an authoritative figure as indeed itinerant sages were for you know many hundreds of years in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, Jesus says, hey, pal, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Uh, Thomas also has this in, in that when Jesus turns to the disciples and say, am I an arbiter or judge? Uh, rhetorically, no. Right? Uh, so maybe he just, uh, his opinion is being asked. He's not being asked to rule. It's not like uh, that he, if he says, eh, yeah, she, she does uh incur the death penalty, go ahead, uh, that they're going to stone her to to death. It's just that they're trying him, apparently, to see, uh, do you agree with the Torah? Or Because they have some reason to think he may not. I mean, I think that shows the artificiality of the whole thing. Why would they think he would not back up what the, the law says? It's either that or you, this real has uh, changed so that uh, in the original telling, it was Christians, disciples, that asked if uh, this woman should be stoned, in which case it would be what Bultmann calls a law word or a law saying for the early Christian community. They wanted to know how to deal with adultery. Uh, but who knows? But in any event, Jesus is saying, He's, he's commenting on whether the accusers really have the right to stone or to death. In a sense, he doesn't come into it. He's saying, well, um, are you any better? Do, do you have the, the right to uh, condemn her as a sinner? I mean, haven't you sinned, basically? Uh, you know, are you that much? Maybe you haven't committed this sin, but, um, you know, maybe uh, you've done something else. I mean, what should, uh, what should qualify somebody? And this gets into a kind of a technical, interesting, theoretical issue does Jesus mean there should never be any judgment of one human by another because nobody's really morally superior uh, sufficiently? Or or is this uh, a step away from mob justice? Is this a way of saying, don't take the law into your own hands because your hands are not pure? This is why we have judges to go to. This is why there's a judicial system. Uh, people 
people that are not personally involved, and therefore what judgment they make does not incur vendetta. Uh, the uh, the relatives of the adulteress, should she be executed by mob violence, might say, "Hey, we're not gonna. We couldn't stop it, but we're not gonna put up with it." Uh, and and so people get killed back and forth. It's the Hatfields versus the McCoys, uh, and it really has something more to do with that. Who has the right to judge? Isn't it uh, somebody? Uh, I mean, there's no judges here, right? Jesus, you know, what's your opinion? Because we think we ought to bash her brains out. That's not up to you. You, you got to take her to court. Uh, I think that's implicit so that uh, it really isn't necessarily a question of Jesus denying the, the law of the Torah. Very good question, your popishness. Uh, let's see. Zvanimir Brekalo says, uh, I was wondering what did Judas betray in the first place? Jesus was a local celebrity. His views were pretty much out there, known to anyone who wanted to be familiar with them. What kind of inside info did Judas have? Uh, very good question again. I've dealt with this one in books and so on. Apparently, they just wanted to, to know Jesus' movements. But uh, Mark tells us that every night he and the disciples would leave Jerusalem and go camp out uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was that a secret? Uh, did Jesus usually have the disciples watching out? Hey, uh, are we being tailed? No, no, uh, Master, the coast is clear. Apparently that was public enough. Why would they need uh, <laughs> an inside source? And this gets into how Judas is probably just a a uh, fictive symbol for Jews in general who in early Christian belief betrayed Jesus by not accepting him as the Messiah and all that. Uh, and uh, so it's, uh, and, and the, art, the arbitrariness of his role is a big hint about that. Uh, my second question concerns the age of Jesus at the start of his mission. Why 30? Unlike British evolutionary biologists without much sense of humor, I think the Bible has its own internal logic so that Jesus' age had to be 30 for some reason, right? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, some of the church fathers deal with this, and uh, one of them, I think it's one of the Cappadocian fathers, uh, says that, uh, you know, why did Jesus die at the age he did? I mean, why wouldn't his death have been atoning had Jesus been skewered by one of Herod the Great's uh, hitmen in Bethlehem? Um, why wait till he's grown up? Or why couldn't Jesus just have... Uh, been put to death as an old man. Uh, what's you know? What difference would it make? Uh, well, one obvious thing to say is uh, part of his mission was to teach, and uh, he's got to reach maturity to do that, believably. But uh, the, this church father said no. It, it was to show that Jesus, uh, being in the prime of life and a vigorous adult, uh, was submitting to death. Uh, he he um, 
he was uh, he wasn't just wasting away, but it becomes clear that he was killed uh, and that he allowed himself to be killed. Uh, but um, there's other theological approaches. Irenaeus, uh, with the doctrine of recapitulation, said that uh, Jesus died at the age of 50. Now, why is that? Well, he rationalized, and I'll tell you why he probably thought so in a second, but he, he said, now that works out real well theologically, because what Jesus, the incarnate word, uh, did was to take humanity upon himself. You're going to hear this again a couple of hundred years later from Athanasius, but he had to, he was like the second Adam. He had to uh, live a human life and uh, so that he could represent people of all ages. And uh, 50, okay, not that old, though at the time, a lot of people um, Probably more of them probably died uh, by then from diseases they had no cure for, etc. And uh, and so uh, this is now he has lived through all the stages of human life. Again, that doesn't quite work because even uh, hundreds of years before that, as you can see in Psalm 90, it was not uncommon for people to live to be 80, right? And uh, so, uh, but at any rate, that's that's Irenaeus' argument. Now, why did he think Jesus was 50 when he died? Well, you remember when Jesus does the temple cleansing in the Gospel of John? Uh, he says, uh, tear down this temple made with hands, and I will raise up another not made with hands. And the um, the the temple authorities say, this guy's out of his mind. It took 46 years to, for Herod to build this temple. You're going to replace it in three days? It's some construction crew, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump had the, uh, the record of um, taking on failed projects that others had started and uh, whipping them into shape ahead of schedule and uh, for less money. Well, th th that's nothing compared to what they thought Jesus was claiming to do. Ah, three days, I'll have another one, even better up there. Uh, and, uh, and, and then John says, well, of course, that would have been stupid, but that's not what he meant. He's talking about the temple of his body, right? It's not the only time in the New Testament that the, the body is spoken of as a temple, right? And, um, and, and Irenaeus said, aha, uh, that is, suppose the, uh, these guys, like the high priest later in the story, is speaking more truly than he knows that uh, the, the temple in question is the temple of Jesus' body, and that too has taken 46 years uh, till the day they're having this conversation. Uh, and uh, so, uh, hidden significance, Jesus is 46. Now, this happens at the beginning of John's gospel, not at the end, as in the other gospels. And uh, how long does the ministry of Jesus last in the gospel of John? Three years, at least, because he's present at three different Passovers, right? And uh, so, it's, it's a longer thing. Now, that would bring him up to age uh, 49. Uh, and now what did his opponents say? You're not even 50 years old yet, but Abraham has seen you? Uh, well, uh, 
if he was not 40 yet, if he was as young as Luke makes him, because Luke's the one that says Jesus was baptized when he was, uh, quote, about 30, unquote, uh, if he was that age, why would not Jesus' opponents have said, you're not even 40 years old? Uh, well, uh, he must be getting close to 50 if uh, you give 50 as the cutoff. You're not even 50 yet. Uh, so uh, Irenaeus, apparently, now he doesn't explain this, but Loisi, Alfred Loisi does, and I uh, find it pretty striking that this, if anything, this must have been the, the calculation that led Irenaeus to think Jesus died at 50 or darn close to it. And... Uh, so there's a theological, a definite theological reason, or at least a reason to to uh, come up with a later uh, date. Uh, so I think you really have a difference between Luke and John on that, though it is implicit, I must admit. Uh, this is Piotr Formella. I'm not sure if you can make a Polish accent. I've never heard one on the Bible Geek show, but feel free to do so if you decide to read my question. I'm just doing my general phony Slavic accent, but about as close as I can get. The question is as follows. Zvonimir is from the from Eastern Europe, too, though I forget where. Um, but uh, this is Piotr. Uh, he says, the question is as follows. Matthew 28:19 has an explicitly Trinitarian formula of the baptism. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which contradicts the Jesus name formula f from Acts 2:38. <laughs> Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Of course, that's the Apostle Peter Laurie, uh, which I think only the Jehovah's Witnesses are well known to use. Well, actually, the Jesus-only Pentecostals do, too, the, the United Pentecostal Church. Um, interestingly, there's one of their churches in uh, neighboring S Smithfield, uh, and they sold it. It's now the Islamic center of Smithfield. I tell you, I guess from one non-Trinitarian group to another. Anyway, um, I find the explicit Trinitarian formula for from Matthew 28:19 a bit odd, as I am not aware of similar wording elsewhere in the New Testament. What do we know about this passage? Could it be an interpolation? Um, okay. Um, Eusebius tells us something very interesting about this. He, uh, if I've got this right, he said that. Uh, that in copies of the Gospel of Matthew, manuscripts that uh, preceded the Council of Nicaea, some of them simply had uh, baptizing them in my name, but all of them since Nicaea read baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, implying that once Nicaea ruled that the Lagos was of the same nature as the Father, not of similar nature, uh, that that's the foundation of the Trinity. Uh, and so this... this um, 
there again, we have no manuscripts that have simply baptizing them in my name, but but uh, Eusebius, at least, I, I'm not sure if I have the wording right, but he implies that there were some known to him. And it, it just seems to me an irresistible suggestion that, yeah, that's the way Matthew originally read uh, and that uh, it's been altered. Now, why? Was somebody trying to falsify what Jesus supposedly said? I mean, that's one reason that uh, conservatives get pretty upset about suggestions like that. No, that's the wrong way to think of it. This was obviously set down as a baptismal formula for the Antiochian missionaries, the missionaries from Antioch, where Matthew's gospel was probably written. This was the formula of initiation that should be used for converts. Well, uh, once they, a uh, couple hundred years later, once they um, made uh, official the, the doctrine of the Trinity or the basis of it, somebody decided, well, really that ought to be reflected in the baptismal formula. And so somebody simply changed Matthew in the same way that you have um, lectionary passages changed uh, so that it says not just brethren, but brothers and sisters, even though that's not in the manuscript, or uh, nasty remarks in the Gospel of John about Jews tend to get uh, edited out for public reading uh, because they they understand that the text has become a liturgical script, and uh, so they they uh, make the the text read that way, so it can be used for public reading. It's it's an amendment to the text. Uh, it's uh, I don't think that's the original, but that's why it was subsequently added. I think. Uh, finally, Piotr says, In this begs another question. In whose name did John the Baptist baptize? Uh, interesting. We don't necessarily, I mean, I don't get the impression that he used a baptismal formula or that at least uh, there's no indication that he did. He was just saying that uh, he um could baptize you to prepare you for the cataclysmic, apocalyptic coming of Erchomenos, uh, the coming one, God or the Messiah or whatever he meant. And, uh, of course, he, he must have said God sent him to do it. And I, I guess if you are using a baptismal formula, you cannot claim that God specifically told you to do this. Um, but the formula in the name of implies a kind of assigned delegated authority. Uh, and if, uh, if you're the guy actually commissioned by God to do it, you don't need to say that. Uh, and uh, it's like an exorcism. In fact, baptism and exorcism were kind of the same thing in the early church, even in the baptismal liturgy today, uh, that um, you invoke the name of a more powerful entity than yourself, God or Jesus or Solomon, for instance, to 
to cast out the demon because you have no particular authority. So you're you're bringing in the big guns. And I should say that's the same way with baptism. And uh, that if that John was the big gun, right? After all, uh, in Acts, what is it, eighteen or nineteen, when Paul meets the uh, the group of unnamed disciples, no brand name on it. And he says, well, whose disciples are you? Uh, tell me this. Did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, uh, what's the Holy Spirit? And he says, ah, you, you only knew, know the baptism of John. Well, that's interesting. That, that implies that they're being baptized in the name of John. But John didn't need to baptize him in the name of John. He just baptized him because he was John. So I hope that helps anyway. Okay. Ooh, let's see who's next. Bob Sexton. Uh, Bob, I tell you, there's something about that name. Anyway, it's easy to understand why someone or anyone could come to doubt the truth said to be God's word in the Bible. I mean, with all the pious fraud, the ends justifying the means involved in the view and control of true reality— uh, every culture, being human as they are, has to come up with some explanation for the world, no matter how old or primitive uh, they had to give their people something to steady them so they could get to work as a society and live out their lives. However, I don't understand going from not believing the Bible uh, and outright atheism. Uh, seems like the fallback position would be like Thoreau and or Emerson. Really, the Bible's contents are irrelevant anyway. Uh, the um, apostles didn't have a Bible. Moses didn't have one. As Abraham didn't either. One can believe in God and see the Bible as moot. Yeah, you know, uh, fellow Bob, uh, Benjamin Warfield uh, perhaps surprisingly said, there could have been Christianity with no Bible at all. But since there was one and, and would be finished up with the New Testament, uh, Jesus speaks of the Bible as being uh, uh, normative. You know, Scripture cannot be broken, John has him say, uh, and, and all that. And not a jot or tittle shall pass from the law until all things are fulfilled, Matthew has him say. Um since he had such confidence in it, and we believe Jesus is the Son of God, well, he must have known what he was, what he was talking about. So we, if we're to be Christians, uh, we've got to share his view of the matter. I mean, just, just by definition, if you're a Christian, presumably you agree with what Christ said, right? I mean, uh, you, you're not going to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't necessarily believe what uh, Jesus Christ said. Well, are, are you sure you're a Christian? I mean, why? Uh, it's not like you don't have the right to, but it's kind of pointless to, to claim that. And uh, I know there's other ways of looking at it, but uh, but I think that's what Warfield was getting at, that uh, there might, that you're kind of, he wouldn't put it this way, but just sort of stuck with the Bible since Jesus said what he did about it. But it, for all we know, it needn't have been that way. Um 
God could have sent Jesus and he died for our sins and rose from the dead and uh, people just handed down that gospel. I mean, that could have happened and it would still have worked. I mean, especially if God is providentially overseeing the process, right? He, He didn't, he wouldn't necessarily have had a Bible as part of Christianity, but it turns out he did. I mean, it's very much like when Thomas Aquinas said, you know, there there are uh, uh, other Christian philosophers who think that it's a viable notion that uh, the world has been here forever, eternally, and that when we say God created it, what we ought to mean is that he is the, the upholding power of being, that without him as the basis, uh, there wouldn't be any world. But since he is there, the the fundamental basis of reality, and he's always been there. Maybe the world always has been too. John Scotus Eriugenus said that, among others. And Aquinas said that's not illogical. That 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 would be viable, except that boy, Genesis sure does seem to say there was a moment in which the world was created. So, you know, I guess that's what we're committed to. Uh, the same sort of thing Warfield was saying. Uh, and so so he's going farther than you. He's saying, what the heck? You, you could have uh, even Christian faith without a Bible. And I mean, there are a lot of people that never read the Bible that that are Christians. Uh, so the, for them, there might as well not be one, right? I've always felt a little guilty that I haven't uh, read all the classics of world literature uh, and uh, all of Shakespeare's plays, whatever, like three or four of them ever. Uh, and I think, well, Price, uh, if you leave it that way, when you die, uh well, it will be as if Shakespeare never wrote those plays. For you, I mean, you've neglected them. They might as well not have existed. Is that the way you want it? Well, you know, who's got the time? But yeah, um, it uh, you know, for them, there isn't any Bible. They never read it, right? But they're they're Christian believers. And uh, but then you you can just say, look, and this is a different point and one I make often. Perhaps ad nauseum, you may be saying, that uh, believing in God is really a philosophical sort of a question, it seems to me. Uh, it's um, it's not tied in with the Bible. And in fact, if it is, you have an additional headache. Um, I almost said on your hands, but that doesn't fit uh, anatomically. Anyway, uh, if you like to, to believe, well, okay, Aquinas again, he said with his five proofs for the existence of God, he's, they're all abstract, right? As he admitted uh, that, well, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, etc., etc. Uh, he says, this would prove to a fair-minded person that there must have been a creator, but it sure does not prove Jehovah exists, right? Sure does not prove that a heavenly father sent his son to save us from our sins, right? I mean, how do we, what's the basis for believing in that? He said, well, that God has revealed it precisely because human inquiry could never establish such a thing. So what we can reason out uh, is is good enough to uh, know how to live in this world. Aristotle 
Aristotle was a Greek pagan. He knew nothing of Christianity, and it hadn't even started yet. Uh, yet he certainly knew his ethics. Uh, you read him, you see that he's 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 it was brilliant, and he came up with a an ethical system we still ought to use, and the Catholic Church did for centuries afterwards. Some still do. Uh, he said, but but uh, nobody is going to just. Uh, make a lucky guess that uh, that God is such and so and he's done this and that to know that we gotta have divine revelation for instance from the Bible uh, again what I just said about the the creation he's saying well you can reason it out and the world might have been created at a particular moment in time or it might not if it might be eternal how do we know which is true well the Bible says uh, revelation says God has told us luckily and uh, same thing with the gospel, uh, that I think is is crucial because a lot of uh, apologists seem to do what uh, Aquinas did, proving, they think, that there is some sort of abstract creator. And then they say, well, you see, you ought to get right with Jehovah, the God of the Bible. Hold on a minute. I'm not sure that that uh, you have gotten us all the way to Jehovah. It may be Allah. It may be uh, the Adi Buddha. It may be uh, Brahman or, or something. In fact, uh, it's notorious that, as Pascal said, uh, the God of the philosophers is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's right. So there's a there's a huge problem. The more you get into it philosophically, the more trouble you have in the Bible. I think. Okay. Um uh, this from Tim in England, who gives me leave to do whatever accent I want. But, you know, what choice do I have? Greetings, Dr. Price. I was at the house of a relative where they happened to be watching Eric Johnson on TBN preaching on John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vintner. Uh, he cuts off every branch that does not produce fruit in me, and he cuts back every branch that does produce fruit so that it might produce more fruit. Eric's shtick was that he cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. In verse 2 could be translated as he lifts up every branch that does not produce fruit. My host got a little upset when I muttered that there is a big difference between uh, lifted up and lopped off, and that Eric was making it up. So we ended up looking at 70 different translations uh, of John 15 on Bible Gateway. Uh, by the way, I, I love Bible Gateway. It's run by a bunch of uh, evangelicals. Not that I care. I'm glad they had the motivation to do it, but it's mighty handy for looking stuff up and all that. Um, they all had some version of cut off or taken away. Just when I'm thinking that I might have made my point, she finds a footnote in the New King James Version. Every branch... Uh, See, yeah, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or lifts up. Uh, yeah, it could mean that. That's true. There's, uh, you know, a lot of ambiguity in language. So you really have to ask what seems to make more sense uh, in, in the context. 
Uh, and I think that, um, well, I think Bultmann is right and the Gospel of John is based on Mandean Gnosticism. Here is a quote from um, one of the Mandean texts. This is, I forget which one, it's Manda Dahai, Knowledge of Life, or uh, Enosh Uthras, or one of the great heavenly beings, says, The vine which bears fruit ascends, and the vine which bears nothing is cut off here from the light. Whoever is enlightened and instructed by me rises and beholds the place of light. That might be what it means in John. The the cut-off thing would, would fit paral, uh, parallels in, uh, in Matthew and Luke, right, where John the Baptist says every tree that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. But this is a parallel, too. I, I, so I think we're kind of stuck. Uh, we, we can't really tell which is intended because actually both would make sense. So uh, that's tough. And this brings up a big theological, or should I say hermeneutical question. Is an ambiguous Bible better than a uh, contradictory Bible? I mean, people get real upset at the idea that um, that the Bible might have contradictions. So they say, well, they're, they're only apparent contradictions. Uh, that's no help, right? Because uh, isn't it supposed to be the apparent sense of the text, the plain sense of the text that is authoritative? That Martin Luther made that clear because he did not want the single sense view. He didn't want to open the door to allegorical exegesis, which makes the Bible into a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, that's, uh, you know, the, the Bible uh, prohibits abortion. Isn't that right, Bob? Bible. That's right, Bob. Abortion is no good. Uh, thanks, Bible. Um, by the way, as you probably know, I'm against abortion, but I am quick to point out it simply does not come up in the Bible. So there's plenty of arguments against abortion, but I wouldn't start invoking the Bible in the, the issue. But he, he wanted to eliminate the Bible as ventriloquist dummy approach. I uh, said, so let's stick with what it seems to say according to the grammar of the Hebrew and Greek and according to the historical context, and so far as we can determine it, let's not resort to, um, to uh, well, it's possible, it means. No, you, you can't do that. Um, but... Uh, if you, but but if you, so what are you going to do when you come up with one of these apparent contradictions? Well, you probably should leave it there and say, "Gee, I, I'm afraid it's just not clear." Uh, it says here that uh, faith uh, plus works brings salvation, but there it says that it's faith alone. Uh, gee, I don't know. That's probably where you should leave it, but of course, people that dare believe nothing the Bible does not say can't leave, can't rest with that ambiguity. They've got to know, and so they say that. Uh, okay, well, let's just uh, go with the <clears throat> more clear passage and interpret the <laughs> less clear one by it. Well, in other words, you're. you're pretending the one says what the other one, which you prefer, actually does say. Uh, and and uh, so we're dealing with an 
ambiguity, an equivocality that cannot be harmonized, right? And uh, so uh, what you are, again, here's a place where what should be agnosticism uh, magically becomes fideism. I don't know becomes hallelujah, I do know, Uh, just because you want to know, the will to believe. Well, if you admit that Scripture is ambiguous, well, that's some revelation, ain't it? As Hosea Ballou says, what kind, uh, was the Trinity revealed by God? Jeez, that's odd, because I thought a revelation is a clarifying of things, right? But instead, you're saying, oh, no, it's a mystery that's been revealed. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, of course... I could give another side of that with Tillich, but I'm already so far afield. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's really impossible to say. I tend to lean in this John passage toward the cutting off uh, passage, but I must admit that the Mandean parallel uh, makes a, makes a lot of sense of the uh, this this uh, the lifted up version. I, I heard this too in uh, a. Um, a sermon when I was in high school because I went to a conservative Baptist association church in those days and, uh, and, uh, they were believers in eternal security, right? That once you are saved, you can never lose your salvation, no matter how far you fall away. And, uh, somebody brought this up. Well, wait a minute. There are believers who are considered to be in Christ, branches of his vine, right? And there's a danger he's going to cut them off and throw them away? I mean, the John the Baptist thing doesn't present that problem, really, right? He doesn't say you're already a branch of the vine. He says if you don't uh, repent and bear fruit, I guess it kind of amounts to the same thing, but it's it's more uh, problematical in John. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, uh-oh, certainly that means an unproductive Christian is uh, going to be uh, kicked the heck out. Uh, that can't happen. Uh, hmm, uh, might it mean something else? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, grammatically or lexically, it could mean lift it up. So maybe that means he's going to give you a boost in, in, uh, and help you to uh, bear more fruit. Uh, and so you can see the, um, the, the tendency, the, the uh, motivation here, the theological reason for wanting to take this to mean something different. But that doesn't really matter, you know, to discount that interpretation because it comes in handy for somebody. That's just the genetic fallacy. I I don't care where it comes from. I mean, when I argue against apologists and their arguments, which seem to me bogus about the, you know, can we know what Jesus really did and said and all that stuff, I know what motivates them. I think I do. They're, they're spin doctors, basically. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean I can discount their arguments, right? I, I have to, uh, to see, well, does this make sense? I mean, it might, no matter how they came to believe it, no matter whether they like it or not. If they do like it and it's handy, what the heck? You know, if it's a good argument, it's a good argument. So, so the, the same thing is, is here, and it is not a bad one at all. 
Okay, let's see. Shall I do this one long one here? Um, I think this one. Oh, I'm afraid I don't have the name on this one. But let me read it anyway. First, let me express my sincere thanks to you, Dr. Carrier and Earl Doherty, for opening my eyes to the theory of Jesus never being on earth. I was raised in Orthodox Judaism and am now an atheist, so I really don't have a dog in this fight. However, when I first became exposed to the arguments for a spiritual Jesus, so many light bulbs popped above my head I could have lit up a city. It is true that I'm viewing this from the later rabbinic Judaism worldview, but my first reaction was, I can definitely see Jews pulling a spiritual revelatory Jesus from the pages of Torah. Like Doherty, for instance, he's the, the great leader on this one, that when it says this and that happened according to the scriptures, they don't mean, well, what do you know? This, this fits with an ancient prediction. It means rather, how do we know he did this? Well, because, uh, aha, with the eye of faith, we can see that the scripture is telling us he did. Right? Okay, Jews have been doing that for centuries, and it doesn't violate the absolute monotheism of Judaism to do so. So much of your theories make much more sense of Paul, the epistles, and Pharisaic Judaism of the first century. Midrash and Peshers were all over the place. You know, those are like, you know, figurative, creative reinterpretations of scripture. What I now struggle with is the refusal of mainstream scholarship even to entertain the idea. I realize scholars are still entrenched in a history that has been so dominated by Christians, and their funding is still primarily from Christian sources. But nowadays, these paradigm shifts should excite some interest from the more agnostic or Jewish scholars, even if the Christians don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Are biblical scholars really so entrenched or fearful for their jobs that they really won't even consider the idea? What does that say? about New Testament scholarship. Am I just too important? No, I'm sorry. Am I just too impatient and need to give it some time to sink in? I have no problem with them rejecting the theory after viewing the evidence and arguing against it, but I see nothing except outright denials. Dr. Carrier's book on the historicity of Jesus brought up so many points that have not been countered that I can find. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the obvious reluctance of scholars to defend their complete certainty that Jesus existed. I'm more more than willing to admit that he existed, but not until I see yours, Dr. Carrier's, and Earl Doherty's evidence refuted with sound logical arguments. Until they are, the mythicist position just plain makes more sense to me. Uh, that's exactly what I would say. I have not seen adequate refutations, and in fact, uh, very often you just do have people say, well, it's like Holocaust denial and all that. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, they're, they're, look at the arguments. I mean, Holocaust denial 
you know, there's all sorts of conspiracies. There's all sorts of uh, inflated data uh, in all manner of uh, historical questions. So y- you don't have to be insane to raise the question. But then you look at the evidence and you realize, geez, you know, there's no real basis for thinking the Holocaust didn't happen. Uh, this is, uh, you know, somebody's trying to get away with something here. I mean, it's not absurd to suggest or that the moon landing was faked. It's not a ridiculous, insane thing to to wonder about. But then you look into it and you find, yeah, or the, the 9-11 truther thing, right? Anything's possible. But then you, uh, you look into it. Nah, um, it, I just can't buy it. I uh, think the same thing is true with this. You, you have to evaluate it according to the facts. The, a nose count does not settle the truth. You can't just appeal to consensus. Oh, nobody really believes in that. Just a few people who, since they are only a few people, must be nuts. Well, then we can dismiss it. And often it's put that way. Uh, tell me why most people, most scholars believe believe that there was a historical Jesus. And then we've got something to debate about. Uh, and and I am, as I hope you know, I'm not a, some sort of dogmatist on the question. I doubt that that could ever be proven. Uh, but it seems to me, as you just said, it makes, I think, the most sense of the evidence. Uh, and uh, though it's not an open and shut thing, of course not. Um, okay, so... Uh, George Wells was, uh, he was the great uh, modern proponent of the theory, and uh, all he said was he thought the uh, Christ myth theory should be considered a reasonable option. He didn't even say it was, I mean, he, he implied that it was the best one, just like I, I do, right? But uh, it's not a dogma. Now, why the heck do most... Uh, New Testament scholars just dismiss it out of hand. I'm no mind reader, but here's what I think. I I believe that they just cannot think outside the box, and that is partly because of institutional affiliation. Uh, they, They might get turned right out if they said, you know, I think maybe those mythicists are right. <laughs> we can't have you saying that to students uh, and their parents aren't going to like it even if they do. Uh, so you you could get fired. I mean, it's things like that are happening all the time. I heard a guy on uh, TV last night saying that uh, he um, made some critique of political correctness and the thought police and the administration caught up with him and uh, basically kicked him out. And uh, so we, we do have thought police in uh, academia, that's that's for sure. One of the big reasons I'm now glad I'm not in it anymore. Um, that and the schedule. I mean, who wants to have to get up early? Anyway, uh, so the, it simply do, cannot occur to them that it's viable, but though that is real, uh, there is a larger, one might say softer way of seeing this too, and it's what Peter Berger calls a, a um, plausibility structure, that the the guild, the consensus to which uh, the anti-mythicists always appeal is 
the people whose books you read, the people whose books are published by fancy publishers, uh, the people that you work with uh, in your department and at the Society of Biblical Literature and so on, who uh, hold certain common assumptions without which they couldn't really communicate uh they 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 uh, wouldn't be able to function as colleagues any longer i mean i i've seen this happen at the jesus seminar not on this issue but that's that kind of brings my point up they used to have scholars from all different mainstream positions on certain things like what's the best way to understand the gospels by modern literary criticism or by social science categories uh, or uh, or or what uh, Bultmann type uh, form criticism well different groups at the Jesus seminar were so sold on their approach that they thought it was not being given sufficient weight in the deliberations of the seminar and said, well, the hell with this and just left. Uh, and uh, because they were in a subgroup, uh, um, a smaller group of colleagues that formed their plausibility structure and the the discussion everybody else would not discuss it on their terms and so well what are we even doing here well the same thing is true for instance if you don't believe in historical Jesus. You're you're not going to be big with the uh, the life of Jesus studies crowd. Right? You're not going to get an article accepted in the the journal for the study of the historical Jesus. Probably wouldn't be submitting one either. But you're not playing the game anymore, and I don't mean that in a cynical way. It's like you're you're not engaged in this in an. Uh, a related scholarly enterprise. Like, you won't see me going to uh, a uh, working group at the SBL on uh, on uh, what is the center of Pauline theology. You used to hear that debated quite a bit. Uh, because I don't think you have genuine Pauline writings, and the ones we have come from different Paulinists who are in conflict with one another, so it's the whole thing is moot. I'd have nothing to say to a group like that, and they, my say in my piece would not contribute to their discussion. So what the heck? I think that's kind of going on. It, it, you things seem plausible in uh, in the midst of a social group. Like I have reasons for thinking communism does not work. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows, right? Uh, but uh, I, I have a reasoned rejection of it. But when I was a kid, I just heard that the commies were the bad guys. And it seemed self-evident to an American that, yeah, communism is insidious and nefarious and must be defeated. Uh, why do you think that? Do you know what communism is? Well, no, I just know they're the bad guys. But how do you know that? Well, because everybody thinks so. Well, everybody you know does, right? And uh, so that's a plausibility structure. You simply take for granted. It's like peer pressure that you don't even perceive to be pressure. It's like the fish in water. Does he realize he's in water and that there are other different atmospheres? No, how could he? Uh, and and so it's, it's the same sort of thing here. And I think that uh, it's being captive to this 
mutual support system of opinions that makes it seem crazy because it is outlandish. And to that, I say you're exactly right with the paradigm business. As Thomas Kuhn says in his groundbreaking book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Every time somebody comes up with a new way to interpret the evidence, for instance, of astronomy, that's the great example he uses, how do we get from the heliocentric view to the geocentric view? How do we get from the Ptolemaic to the Copernican way of understanding the planets? Well, uh, somebody came up with a, a way of interpreting the astronomical data that simplified everything. It had to do with the retrograde motion of the planets. What the heck is going on? As the planets orbit the Earth, it's usually pretty regular, but occasionally it sort of does a little dance and then goes on its merry way. What what could be happening there? And so they came up with all kinds of complex ways of explaining this weird occasional motion of the planets orbiting the Earth. And then Copernicus realized, wait a minute, if the planets, including the Earth, are all revolving around the sun... Well, that would explain why the motion of the planets seems irregular at certain points, because our base of observation is moving, too. Uh, so we're not seeing it from a, a steady, consistent standpoint. Bingo! Once he figured that out, uh, everything fell into place. Uh, and and so on. He says, however, this was not immediately accepted. Uh, Martin Luther heard about Copernicus and says, this mad fellow would turn the universe upside down. Well, uh, why does it take a long time? Well, because everybody thinks they know the truth already because they've always heard it was a different way. Uh, and it's going to take a lot to get them to change their mind. And it should Right, Copernicus had to make a pretty strong case, uh, and eventually people said, you know, I think he is right. I, I think that this guy's got it. Or think of when I was a little kid, uh, when I was in school, you had to notice in geography class that the outlines of the continents fit into each other like jigsaw puzzle pieces. Why is that? Well, they they had no real answer for it, uh, but there were these nuts that believed in continental drift, and eventually all the, the geographers agreed, you know, this guy is right. Now we know how the Earth's crust gradually moves and so on. Son of a gun, he's right. Uh, and so the paradigm changed, but it took a lot of scrutiny of the new proposal for everybody to say reluctantly, Geez, I guess we were wrong, and this guy is right. And the paradigm shifts. So now, if you don't believe in uh, um, continental drift, you're considered a nut, right? And uh, so the 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 idea is that we mythicists think that this is the paradigm that makes the most sense of the weird, uh, well, of the data, but especially of the weird data. The as the uh, anomalous data, Kuhn calls it, that never easily fit into the uh, earlier paradigm. Well, we're starting from that and saying, from this standpoint, does the rest of it make new sense? Wow, it does. 
now it's going to take a long time, no doubt, for this to uh, uh, to become the normative uh, paradigm if it ever does. But more and more people are scholars are embracing it, like uh, Thomas L. Thompson, uh, Thomas Brody, and and uh, some others. So uh, it's it's going to take a while, and and again, it might not happen. But that's kind of what I'm thinking. Uh, Old Testament minimalism was the same way. Thomas L. Thompson couldn't get a job when he first espoused this. He wound up painting houses to make his living, but he wrote stuff and others did, uh, and now that's the mainstream opinion. Did Moses exist? Hell no. Did Abraham exist as a historical person? No way, etc. So if you're thinking there really were these guys, King David, King Solomon, there was a temple in Jerusalem, now you're like a fundamentalist. Uh, and because the paradigm shifted, luckily for Thompson, within his lifetime. And I, I suspect New Testament minimalism will gain ground, too. I was reading uh, Philip R. Davies' book, um, In Search of, quote, Ancient Israel, unquote. Uh, and uh, he's talking about how, you know, we've always thought this was history, but it's probably not. And he explains why. And I, I'm thinking to myself, the margins of uh, my copy have notes and they're saying the same thing is true of the gospels you know what what, when are people going to see this and in fact um, uh, Davies is now uh, considering New Testament minimalism or mythicism whatever you want to call it so it may happen and it'll be interesting to see if it does I sort of doubt it will in my lifetime but then again I really don't care I mean you know it's not going to make any difference to my life, uh, what most people think about that or anything else. So, you know, it's not a crusade to get minimalism established. It'd be interesting to see, but really, what difference does it make? Okay, uh, I guess that's it for today's exciting Bible geek. Once again, let me remind you to go to Amazon and order that uh, that uh, Holy Fable Volume 2 and go on over to Patreon to sign up. You'll be glad you did. Thanks for joining me with another exciting edition of The Bible Geek. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.